Uh, first, I want to apologize for the tilt in the Advent wreath. <laughs> uh, the Advent wreath needs to be completely taken apart and put back together again, and we can't do that in this Advent cycle. So we will have a listing Advent wreath for Advent 3 and Advent 4. Some of you are going to find this almost intolerable. <laughs> but, but I hope you'll, you'll manage to sort of buck up and realize that sometimes things happen. However, it won't fall down. We've wired it where it needs to be, so it should be okay for this week and for next week. In my sermon this morning, I may be, for some of you, all over the road, but I thought I'd say a word about Rose Sunday or about um, this Sunday, Gaudete Sunday in Advent, the third Sunday, where we wear rose-colored vestments, to say some things about its origins, to say some things to you about two Advent themes that I've preached about before but have now come up again certainly in the reading from Isaiah and from the Gospel, and those things are the importance of joy in the Christian faith and life, and as one of the uh, centerpieces of the Advent season, and also expectancy and expectation, and how we understand as a spiritual category the idea of being a person who is expectant and what does it mean. And we certainly seem to have received some word about this, at least obliquely, from the gospel. And then the second reading I'm going to speak about last, because Isaiah and the gospel are about the first coming of Jesus, the birth of the Savior, the anticipation, the expectant waiting for the birth of the infant Savior, Jesus. And James is about the second coming. And how do we understand and can we appropriate the idea of the second coming? And is it important for us to do that at all? But how have Episcopalians understood what this means? And how might we appropriate that um, for our own personal history in any way? How do you and I think about what to yearn for with regard to the second coming? Because what James is dealing with when he exhorts the people today to be patient is that they're waiting around for Jesus to come again in the first generation, and you know, he still hasn't come. So what are we going to do about that, and how are we going to think about that? Or maybe he has. So let's just hold that thought. In the Western liturgy... The origin of the season of Advent in Northern Europe produced a season of preparation for Christmas that was six weeks long. It began in November after the feast of St. Martin of Tours on November the 14th. It was called St. Martin's Lent and the observance was heavily penitential, very similar to the observance of the six-week season of Lent, which is the preparatory season for Easter. And as time went on, the southern part of Western Europe, Italy, where Rome was, and other southern parts had celebrated a season of preparation for Christmas that was four weeks long. So as we began to have some uniformity in the celebration of the Christian year, by the time of Charlemagne and his advisor Alcuin of York, 
who began to devise a calendar that was used pretty universally throughout the Western Church. We began to shorten Advent in the north, in our neck of the woods, France, England, Germany, Belgium, Holland. We shortened it to four weeks, but retained a penitential flavor to the season. I know that when I was in seminary, uh, the fast that we kept uh, in Advent was as rigorous almost as it was in Lent. So that wasn't that long ago. And uh, in the renewal in the church's liturgy in the West, in the Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the Lutheran Church, the liturgical churches, we have focused in the last 40 years on um, not emphasizing the penitential aspect of Advent, but focusing on the joyful expectancy that is part of this season and how that animates the Christian character in such a way as to produce a converted heart yet once again. And so, in the celebration in the West of a heavily penitential season, we began to think, well, you know, one of these four Sundays, maybe we should have a little lighter mood. And so, uh, in the old liturgy, when you came in, you came into the singing of a psalm called the Introit, and it began, Gaudete Domine Semper, rejoice always rejoice. And so this Sunday was a, a Sunday of rejoicing, and the readings had a somewhat lighter tone, or at least focused on the promises of God as opposed to our own uh, shortcomings and our own need for repentance. So that's the origin. In Lent, it will be the fourth Sunday, and it will be called Laetare Sunday. So we'll talk about that then. Of course, in the new Church of England Book of Common Worship, for the first time, the possibility that a church may wear rose-colored vestments is mentioned and offered as an option. And for those of us who believe in a system of salvation by haberdashery, we believe that is an advance. <laughs> some, would, uh, some critics might also say, well, it's the, one of the only two times a year where the, most of the clergy can wear vestments that are consistent with their social and political principles. But be that as it may, we'll let that alone. 800 years ago, this began in the West. And so churches that had them wore these rose-colored vestments on this Sunday. So now you know. Isaiah, talking today about what the Messianic age is going to be like and drawing his description of the Messianic age from the history that he has lived as a prophet of God speaking about exile and return. The theme of exile and return amongst the people of the covenant is a significant theme. And those who heard Jesus and saw his mighty works reflected on their own sacred literature and understood that in places like the book of the prophet Isaiah, they believe that passages like this are predictive of the life and ministry of Jesus, and they came to believe as Christians and followers of Jesus that now we see the unique focus of the divine presence in this human being, Jesus Christ. 
So today Isaiah is speaking about the return from Babylon. The idea of the messianic age now, we are being prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And in this we will see the transformation of the way we understand the world and we'll see God's healing, reconciling power, the natural work of God to make whole and to affirm the goodness of every human person being brought to the fore. And so you hear today the description of the healing you hear the description of those blind receiving their sight, of the good news that are go that's going to be preached to the poor, obliquely in this thing, but explicitly in the gospel. And you will understand and see that God's reconciling, restorative work is present to the world, and has been over time. And the people of the covenant began to understand that exile and return and bringing to completeness and wholeness had something of a cyclical aspect because Isaiah knows that there was a time before Babylon when this happened and that was coming out of Egypt, coming out of bondage back into the promised land. And somehow now this great defining event is recapitulated again in the Babylonian captivity and in the eyes of many people had not come to its completion until Jesus till the incarnation, and now we see this brought to completion. So we're set up to think about the messianic age. And in the gospel, first let me say that in the reading from Isaiah, the theme is a joyful one, a celebratory one, because what has happened for Isaiah is in the midst of baffling and difficult circumstances in history, he, as a prophet of God and the people of God, have come to see God's power and presence and God's purposes begun to be revealed. And Christians began to say when they heard that, that you know what, if that's true corporately, it may be true presently. So a joyful Christian is somebody who believes that the conundrums and the ambiguities and the difficulties of life, the things that remain to us that we live through baffling, are now going to be able to come clearer to us in terms of how they fit into God's purposes for the cosmos, where we fit, why we are part of God's plan, and the affirmation that each one of you in big and small ways is necessary for the bringing to completion and healing and wholeness the plan of God. That that is the gospel of Christ. That that is so. So being joyful is an important thing. It isn't that we live in a state of perpetual giddy hilarity. We're not Snoopy in peanuts, you know. But we are people who have a sure confidence that we can get clear about things that we need to if we live a life of intention and care. In the gospel, Jesus today is met by some disciples of John the Baptist. <clears throat> Here's something that to me is a testimony of the, um, the veracity of the biblical witness. Uh, the, the biblical writers were not afraid to describe circumstances that would be on one level embarrassing to the church's life and to the ministry of Jesus. And why I mention that is that clearly uh, Jesus appears to have been a disciple of John the Baptist. 
He came to him to be baptized. He may have been related to John the Baptist. He may have been influenced by John the Baptist being influenced by the community out where the Dead Sea Scrolls are, the Qumran community. So some phrases and some references in Jesus' words and works in the New Testament refer to the disciplines of that community. And John the Baptist may have had some connection there. And simply it was impossible to deny that that was so. And yet at the same time it became clear that after Jesus' baptism, his ministry took a left turn from Jesus. And his focus was no longer preaching repentance that was the centerpiece of John the Baptist, but preaching the nearness of the kingdom of God and the necessity that each one of us be instruments, be transparencies and reflections of this kingdom in our relational life and in creating a society where it is easier for people to be good. So today John the Baptist's disciples come to him and say, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And I believe that the Savior behaves in a way today uh, that is very humble. He never explicitly refers to himself when he said, Look at the results of this ministry. What do you see? The blind receive their sight. The lame can walk. The good news is preached to the poor. People experience some species of transformation and spiritual growth and impact on their emotional, spiritual, and mental states in such a way as they now become instruments of God's work in the world. Not only is it uniquely focused in me and in my ministry, but I am giving you tools that you can use. So look at this and see what you think you need to make up your mind with regard to whether or not this is a godly undertaking. So you go back and tell that to John the Baptist. But I also want to say, as he concludes this gospel, that John the Baptist represents the culmination of the Old Testament prophecy. He stands at the door between the old age and the messianic age now that will bring Jesus. And in him, we see fully focused all of the force and effect of the prophets of Israel in his ministry. And by virtue of that, we have now prepared the way, as the hymn says, we just read, or sang, rather, uh, between the epistle and the gospel. So in this sense, we're speaking about the expectancy And it relates to the definition of expectancy in spiritual terms, which is the permitting yourself to allow the full range of your imaginative powers to be brought to bear on the deep things of Christian faith and belief. So Jesus says, you look at the results of this ministry, and each one of you need to exercise your imaginative powers with regard to how that is going to impact your living, and whether or not it's going to give you any kind of marching orders at all about being a better human being. You know, if you begin to think about this, the transformative work of God in Christ is not a specifically religious undertaking. It is the process whereby you come to understand that living into the best and the highest of your humanity, which we have seen in the person of Jesus Christ, the great affirmation of our humanity, God's yes to humanity, that you and I now can participate in that in this way 
and we can use our own imaginative powers focusing on our own talents, skills, and abilities to be messengers of the gospel. We are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. So that's the first coming. We're waiting that. We're wait, they're waiting. The thing was, is about, you know, the birth of Jesus. But James is now a generation out. And people are getting nervous because he hasn't come yet, at least the way they think he ought to. And so James counsels his readership to be patient. You know, patience is one of the great virtues in the spiritual life. I've mentioned to you before that... uh, one of the threads that runs through Anglicanism is a spiritual tradition that has a bad name for many because it's hard to understand and amorphous. It's called mysticism. But one of the ways you can define mysticism is to understand it as a pathway or an ascent to God that involves five things. Purgation, emptying, study, discipline, and patience. So without getting into a long description of what each of those mean, I've done that before. Patience is last, and it's last because it's the hardest. Being patient and waiting on God, waiting expectantly, using your imaginative powers, being joy. You know, joy is not something that you're happy about because you have concrete proof and an absolute indication of how things are going to turn out. It's driven by faith. That some of the glimmers that you get about your life and what's happening to you come clear. And so by virtue of those indications, you have some confidence that God is present to you and in you. So James is counseling people to be patient as they wait for the second coming. Now there's a whole lot of stuff in this country mainly in evangelical circles, about the second coming. There are all kinds of theories about the second coming. There's a guy named Tim LaHaye and his partner, whatever his name was, who've written a whole bunch of novels called Left Behind. They've made an absolute fortune writing this stuff. And it's all about the rapture. You know, it's all about, well, when this rapture comes, this car will be driverless. Let's just hope you and I aren't behind them. (laughs) Right? That'll be a situation that we'll have on our hands. Well, there are all kinds of theories about this. I'm going to read to you, if you'll indulge me, the theory of the second coming. That is the one that would, if there's such a thing the official one that the Episcopalians understand or uh, mostly agree with, and we'll talk about that in a minute, in contrast to the left-behind stuff. This all has to do with millennialism, you know, the coming of the, the second coming, when everything changes. Now, the most popular in this country for many is God's coming. We're going to have a divine ethnic cleansing. We're going to then have, uh, get transported somewhere else and then come back and there'll be all this judgment going on. And before you know it, that's how it's going to work. Right? Well, what we believe in 
is something that's been around for a long, long time, and the guy who sort of gave it its real force and effect was St. Augustine of Hippo in the 5th century. We believe in something called amillennialism, sometimes referred to as non-millennialism, nunc millennialism, my favorite term, or realized millennialism is not an actual physical realm on earth. We do not believe that it will last a thousand years. Rather, it began at the time of Pentecost and is currently active in the world. Today, through the presence of the heavenly reign of Christ, the Bible, the Holy Spirit, and the activities of Christian faith. Revelation, the book of Revelation, is seen as occurrences which have already happened or which are symbolic in nature and not to be taken literally. The Antichrist is looked upon figuratively and not as a real person. This belief was held by many leaders of the early Christian church during the first and second century. St. Augustine, often called the father of amillennialism was largely responsible for the establishment of amillennialism as the formal church belief. It remained the generally accepted system throughout Christianity until after the Reformation in the 16th century. Many Christian denominations, including the Anglican Communion, Disciples of Christ, Lutheran, Orthodox, Reformed, Roman Catholic, and some Baptists continue to teach a millennialism. Well, so what? I read this and I think to myself, you know what? I can't use it. It's not going to be something that I'm going to be able to do a whole lot with. There was an old retired priest in Tucson, Arizona, when he, we would, he'd go to learned lectures that we'd all go to as the clericus, and they'd hear this lecture, and he'd lean over and say to me, you know, David, I'm only getting about 10% of this. You and I think about the coming of Christ again and again in our hearts. We pray for it and we yearn for it. And we ask God to have that Christ come. And I expect throughout the ages that is exactly how we have been able to appropriate and to understand that. Jesus before my eyes in adoration, Jesus in my heart in communion, and Jesus in my hands in cooperation. And we wish year after year in these preparatory seasons to ask God to come to us in that way, to revivify our vocations, to give us the strength and stamina to meet the demands and the challenges that are in front of each of us on a daily basis and to reconnect with that divine center, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So I think that's probably a better way. You know, there's a big doctrine that's very important to Christianity called the atonement. And there are a number of theories of the atonement. And I remember in seminary, I read a little book by a, a famous theologian in the Church of England named Alan Richardson. And in the mid-1930s, he wrote this little book called Creeds in the Making. 
And he had a whole chapter on the doctrine of the atonement. And he said in the opening lines, since the doctrine of the atonement is a theory, you and I are free to make up our own theory about the doctrine of the atonement. And so too that's true about premillennialism, amillennialism, millennialism, dispensational premillennialism, whatever it is you want to do. You're free to make up your own theory about how we think God is coming. And I suspect for most of us, we all know what it means to say that Christ comes again in our hearts, at least from time to time. So this week, give thanks for the possibility to uh, be a joyful person and know that the things that are puzzling you are going to come clear if you center yourself in God. Give thanks for the ability to use the full range of your imaginative powers to understand the deep things of Christian faith and belief and touch that divine center which is part of every human person. Amen.